high-resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Welcome to This Week in Retro for the week of December 7th. Coming up on today's show... The Owlet BBC Micro Emulator. Launch day console shortages. The Sega Venus Prototype. Checkmate Minis. All this and more on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Neil, it seems like every week we're talking about the computer revolution that's powering retro enthusiasts all over the world. FPGAs are becoming incredibly popular. Mm -hmm. You've got the Analog Pocket, the Spectrum Next, the Unamiga. These are all super exciting projects, but I really believe that without the low-cost, hacker-friendly Raspberry Pi acting as a gateway into emulation for most people, we wouldn't be seeing the simulation of FPGAs that we're seeing now. And what classic micro was responsible for the Raspberry Pi? Well, Neil, as you already know from your retro tea break interview with him, Eben Upton got his start programming with the BBC Micro. Neil, like Eben, did you get your start with a Beeb in school? Oh, I really did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the computer literacy project was very much a part of my education. And there was a BBC Micro in every classroom right from the start, from primary school. At the age of five, uh, the very first year of going to school, there was a BBC Micro at the back of my classroom, just one. Mm -hmm. um, because it was a fairly small school in fact my first teacher was a nun so I had the combination of a nun and a BBC micro in my classroom that, that, that's a winning combination Neil <laughs> and uh, I can't say I remember a whole lot about that year because I was five years old but by the second year we were certainly using the BBC regularly come the end of the third year I was forfeiting running around the playground at lunchtime to write text adventures on logo on the BBC mm -hmm. so I, I absolutely fell in love with it and, um, you know, having the BBC in school, it wasn't about computer lessons. I don't think we even had dedicated computer lessons back then. None that I can remember. The BBC Micro just became part and parcel of every lesson. There was always a little element in a maths lesson where you did a bit on the BBC Micro or an English lesson. You did a, a spelling bee type thing on the BBC Micro. So you know, I think an awful lot of people of my generation have a lot to thank the BBC Micro for in just introducing us to computing and making us feel comfortable with it. Even though we didn't know how important it was at the time, it was absolutely uh, the start for me and the start for many people of my generation. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, John? Have you used one? No. Um, you know, unfortunately, the BBC Micro hasn't found its way into my collection yet. Um, for those of us here in the States, even if you do pay the pretty significant shipping charges to get one sent here, uh, you'll have to deal with the usual headaches. You know, you've got to convert the voltage. You've got to deal with the whole PAL thing. Um, so it's not the easiest machine to get up and running here. Uh, so I was very happy to learn from Stargate, uh, Starcade 2084 on our show subreddit of a new browser-based emulation project called OwlNet, Neil. OwlNet allows you to run BBC Basic in your browser. And get this, there's a bot called aptly uh, BBC Microbot, and it will run BBC Basic and it will actually output your results in a tweet. Ah, what a world we live in, Neil. What I've a even, world. I think I've even seen Evan tweeting about this or using this. I've, I've seen these BBC Micro programs. The results pop up in my Twitter feed. It's very cool. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this brings me to my next question. So we're seeing more and more ways to get your retro computing fix. You've got the relatively expensive options like FPGAs, you've got the Mister, the Spectrum Next, all the way down to free browser-based solutions like Alnet. Now for you, Neil, 
how much is having the actual vintage computer set up in front of you is how much is that part of your retro computing mm. experience? It's a good question. It's a good question. Just before we move on, is it Owlnet or Owlet that the name of this program? Oh, I think that it is Owlet. Owlet. Anytime you've heard anytime you've heard me say <laughs> Owlnet, just disregard that. <laughs> <laughs> and of course the owl was the logo on the BBC Micro, so that's where it ties in with the word owl. And uh, anyway, um, yeah, I think you can tier retro or nostalgic experiences without really straying into snobbery, which is so easily done. It's always a risk. I think tier one is the original hardware, the machine, a CRT monitor or a period authentic display, beautifully set up desk because the experience extends beyond the machine itself. You want the Mm -hmm. desk, even a dedicated room like you and I are lucky enough to have. You know, that gives you a chance to really bask in the nostalgia. I think most of us want that, but we accept that it's really convenient to dedicate the space, the time, the money into creating all of that. So we look for the next best thing. And the next best thing really is down to personal preference and circumstance. I think it's far easier to use a web browser based emulator like Owlet on your lunch break at work, for example. Mm-hmm. Instead of setting up your BBC Micro in the accounts department, you know, <laughs> for a quick game of Granny's Garden, it's just not feasible. So it comes down to personal preference. And um, I think accessibility to the systems or not the physical systems, but the use of the systems is what drives our communities and the development on our favorite retro platform. So it's really, really important that these alternatives exist to real hardware and that they're good enough that people can forget that they're they're not actually using that original hardware and they can enjoy the experience. And I think that's entirely possible with everything from the Pi to the FPGA-based solutions to, like Owlet, a browser-based emulator. I think it's entirely possible to lose yourself in these things, such as the majority of all of these emulators now. So tier one, the real hardware for a 100% real experience. Tier, Tier two, is anything that works for you. If you're smiling, then it's working. That's how I see it. How about you, John? Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I I think that for me personally with a computer, and I kind of classify computers different than consoles and that computers for me tend to be a bit more of a lean forward experience. And I'm sitting at a desk, you know, when I'm using a a retro micro, I want to be sitting at a desk in front of it. Um, I I like the hybrid of old and new. You know, I'm lucky enough to have a space for a room full of old computers. And mm-hmm. after years of apartment living, when that wasn't the case and being confined to only using emulators, I love the ability to just take a computer off the shelf, sit it in front of me and power it on. Yeah. Um, you know, there's something almost like time travel that happens when you do that. Uh, that said, I do subscribe fully to modern storage solutions that allow you to skip some of the less romantic aspects of the hobby, like load times, you know, bad sectors, corrupting your disks, all that stuff. So, um, and also there's definitely a time and a place for emulation too. You know, if I want to go quickly through a game library and pick out some games that look neat on a certain computer, I'll fire up an emulator and then I'll load up, you know, a Toset collection and have a browse. Uh, Emulation is great for that. And then I'll sort of cherry pick the games that I really want to try out on the real system. Yeah, but of course, you're only playing the games that you're legally entitled to play. From Absolutely. I've got a huge library of legally obtained games, Neil. Huge. (laughs) And uh, I think as time goes by, we're seeing more and more of that hybrid situation. I'm fully on board with you, by the way. You know, nobody wants to have to relive bad load times and things like that. So totally Mm -hmm. on board with that. And um, I think more and more for people who want to enjoy that sense of nostalgia in a more convenient form, even if they do have the space for it. For example, 
I've got a, a Mr. FPGA device inside an Amiga-inspired desktop case, which we'll talk about a bit more later today. And there's nothing old about any of it. This is a completely new system. And even when I have all of my other classic systems set up, uh, I'll have them all set up in the new space I'm moving into at the moment. So I'll have the choice. Do I want to sit down at original Commodore 64? I'm going to be so tempted all the time to walk up to this modern Mr. FPGA-based setup just because I know I'll be able to sit down, I'll be able to play the game I want instantly, and I'm not going to run into any problems. So convenience plays a huge part. And I think with devices like the Mr., the Unamiga, the Vampire Standalone, I think these lines are going to blur more and more into what people decide, you know, what choices they make, even when they have the space for classic systems. It's, It's an interesting time, I think, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you want to try Owlet, and that's Owlet, not Owlnet, uh, and the BBC Microbot, just click on the story in the show notes. And if you'd like to share your own memories of programming on a Beeb, feel free to comment on this story in our show subreddit. A story now comes from the website denofgeek.com. They explore the recent release day console shortages. And the article begins, Microsoft and Sony are dealing with hardware shortages that have made it incredibly difficult to pre-order or outright purchase a next generation console. Even worse, everything we've heard so far suggests that it's going to be a long time before you're able to buy an Xbox Series X, S or PS5 with relative ease. As I understand it, It's going to be very hard for many of us to get the console that we want this Christmas. Microsoft aren't able to give any details on when things might get better for potential Xbox owners. Sony, on the other hand, haven't actually officially commented, but it's pretty much the same situation for them. So um, it's starting to feel a bit like Groundhog Day when it comes to new console launches, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. You know, I just don't understand why it's so hard to just not manufacture enough of a product to satisfy demand. You know, it's freaking 2020, Neil. It's not 1983 with the Cabbage Patch dolls. <laughs> yeah, I remember. And it, it, it also, you know, quality control has gotten so much better with manufacturing that you can't really blame that either. I remember there was an Apple II model. I can't remember which one that right out of the gate, it would overheat. Do you remember hearing this story and the in the, mm. uh, the 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 stores would tell customers, well, just lift it up and drop it heavily on your desk to reseat the chips. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing happened when we hadn't quite gotten the, the manufacturing process down of electronics components. But right now, there is no excuse. There's no excuse. You know, companies like Sony spend millions on market research. They know what the demand for this thing is. Are, are their margins and Microsoft's margins really that thin that they're scared to overproduce? And if they are, what does that say about the console industry in general? You know, are they really on such thin ice? Are they scared of ending up with a warehouse full of consoles like the, the like Commodore did with the CD32 in the Philippines? You know, I, I don't know, Neil. Anyway, rant over what about you neil have you have you tried to get either console um no i'm not an early adopter john so i I haven't i think the uh lift and drop technique was also one for the atari st i think that was a way of reseating the 68,000 on that as well so yeah yeah what a great solution to a problem (laughs) we've we've certainly come a long way I'd, i'd like to think um but no, I haven't tried to get either of these, and mainly because I've got a relatively powerful PC for video editing, so it naturally doubles as a good gaming machine. You know, I've got a nice GPU in there. It's fine. I can do all the gaming I want on there. So I tend to be more of a PC gamer and a retro console gamer. I'll eventually get to the PS5 and the current mm. generation in 10 years or so. I'll get around to it. But um, I think the first time that I was affected by such a thing was with the Xbox 360. I remember that there was a, a lot of hype, just like, today a huge amount of hype for the latest xbox 
And it went through that cycle of the scalpers buying them, selling them at inflated prices on eBay. And it is, I have to confess, it's the one time that I became part of the problem, John. I wanted the console so badly that I did buy it on eBay. I did pay over the odds for it. Not massively, but if I was more patient, I wouldn't have needed to. And demand massively outstripped supply on that occasion. Um, mm-hmm. have, have you been in that situation? Have you been unable to get hold of a console or a game or anything at launch? I spent some time thinking about this, and mm-hmm. I don't actually believe I've ever bought a console on launch. Um, it's just, it, it's not even often that I buy a console the same year it's released. Yeah. Uh, I, the thing is, is that, you know, aside from just being part of the zeitgeist, being part of the, the community that can discuss it, uh, there's not a lot of advantages to buying consoles on release. You've got to deal with a library that is is pretty small, and most of the time, launch libraries are less than stellar. Um, and then you also have to deal with all of the you know the rough road of of patches and in and software updates and firmware updates that the company pushes out. You know these zero day things, and so you're ending up spending more time waiting for your system to update than you are actually playing games a lot of the time uh, when it's first out of the gate. So uh, no, Neil. I've, I've never bought a console. On yeah, launch. yeah, and I think backward compatibility is just as important these days as the launch library now. You know, sure. everyone that gets a PS5 wants to not just be able to play their PS4 games, they're, they're expecting now to see them run at better frame rates, to be able to play right. them in 4K using the same disc. You know, it's, uh, it's a very complex beast. It, we're, we're way beyond the upgrade from the, the NES to the SNES. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's such a complex thing, and it's no surprise that there are problems to be ironed out. So, yeah, yeah be more patient. <laughs> it's, it's easy to say when you're our age but i remember exactly how i was when i was a teenager and i was right right now so yeah i don't blame people but it's certainly not a new phenomenon um i put a link in the show notes which is a news report from 1988 titled nuts for nintendo and uh, i wonder john if you'd mind dropping in a little clip from that news report in the podcast now this man came all the way from indiana to get one he came a thousand miles just for this game yeah I've done seven stores a day for three weeks now, and I cannot find it. I have to live with my kids for the rest of the year, so I have to have this on Christmas Day. So to please the kids, they line up at the few stores that have been able to get copies of the hottest Nintendo games, Mario 2 and The Adventure of Link. Now what's Nintendo, you ask, and why should you care? Well, I think it's something you should know about because it's captured America's children. Well, I don't think you need me to explain what Nintendo is, but it's just uh, <laughs> one of many examples of shortages from big game companies. Uh, Nintendo, Sony, Sega, and Microsoft over the years. It's such a familiar news report. If you listen to the rest of that news report, it even goes into um, you know our video games brainwashing our children. It, it really is a classic 80s video game nasties and shortage report, but we've heard it so many times. You know, uh, people queuing to get the latest console or the latest game at Christmas, queuing for hours. One guy in that report has traveled 1,000 miles just to try and get the game. Um, You'd think people would have learned by now, you know, a couple of decades later, three decades later even. And, um, you know, by that, I mean, you'd think they'd have learned some patience. It's understandable that companies creating these things have to find a balance between supply and demand and, and manufacturing capacity. The last thing the industry needs really is another North American style video game crash and a a glut of unsold titles 
buried in the desert. <laughs> but come on, people, would it kill you to just wait a month for you, for the latest console? A month, two months? Am I turning into an old man, John? Do I sound like I'm shouting at clouds in my back garden? <laughs> well, you know, Neil, this this phenomenon is not only relegated to video games. Uh, you know, we are immersed in that world. And it's not necessarily, you know, relegated to the young either. You know, we talk about young people as being, you know, really impatient. But if you look at any of the, uh, you know, more modern retro console releases like the ZX Spectrum Next, uh, people are eager to get in line first, you know, they're eager, you know, the whole the whole point of Kickstarter is that you can get it before we put it out for regular sale. You can be first in line with a Founders Day edition, you know, and, and that whole idea, the idea of a Founders Day edition is it's just playing on people's impatience and it's playing on people's want to have something that, you know, other people don't have or don't have yet. And, um, you know, it's sort of not good. <laughs> you know, it's it, it sort of plays upon people's darker emotions that say, hey, I've got this thing. You don't have it. Therefore, I'm better than you. So, you know, I'm not fully sold on, on that on that side of things. Although at the same time, you know, the more positive thing is, is that people want to jump in at first because they want to jump in all together and experience a new thing with a community of like minded people. So if you get your PS5 on launch day, not only are you saying, yes, I've got this thing that other people don't have, haha, but you're also saying, look, I'm going to go online and I'm going to find the other people that also have this thing and we're going to form a community and we can share our experience together. And that that can be a positive thing socially, especially in these days where we're not able to connect physically with people. Yeah. And I don't see this even improving as we move into the next generation again, when we undoubtedly go on to thin client gaming, the problem mm -hmm. isn't going to be the hardware, it's going to be the data center capacity. You know, right. Sorry, you can't all use the, the latest generation on launch day because you know, we're overloaded. We need to build more data centers to accommodate it. So uh, it's going to be a problem that's going to be with us for a long time, I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, if you're trying to get a hold of the new Xbox or PlayStation, then we'd love to hear your experiences on our subreddit or anything else for that matter. Maybe you missed out on the ZX Spectrum next latest campaign, anything like that. Come and share your, um, your views and your thoughts and your comments, and uh, maybe we'll chat about them in a future episode. Head over to our subreddit, This Week in Retro, over on Reddit. Neil, a few weeks ago, we talked about Sega's somewhat ridiculous line of micro Game Gear portables. At the time, I declared that the Game Gear was Sega's lone foray into the realm of handheld systems. But I was wrong, Neil. I was wrong. <laughs> I'd forgotten about the Sega Nomad. Uh, the Nomad was released here in North America in 1995, and it was designed to breathe new life into Sega's aging 16-bit portfolio by allowing gamers to take their Mega Drive games on the go. That's right, a portable Genesis, just what the world was asking for. Well, apparently not, because Europe didn't even get a Nomad release. <laughs> now, in 1995, Neil, where were you in the gaming sphere? And if the Nomad had been released in the UK, would you have been interested? Uh, 1995, I, I was a PC gamer. I can tell you lived in the UK for some time because you use Mega Drive and Genesis so interchangeably. That's in right, without Matt and I. <laughs> <laughs> but um, also, we should remember there was the Dreamcast VMU, John, which are, oh, yes. they're kind of right. classified as a simple handheld gaming device by Sega. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's kind of a thing. It counts, it counts. Um, <laughs> but yeah, 1995, PC gamer through and through at that point. 
I was buying every magazine I could get my hands on with a cover CD, exploring every single program I could on the CD. You know, the web was too slow at this point just to download those multimedia experiences that we demanded at that point. So it was all about games on multiple CDs and unskippable <laughs> cut scenes for me in 1995 on my PC. Yeah, yeah. The glory days, Neil, oh, the glory yeah. days. <laughs> I can hear I can hear CD drives spinning up now. But, uh-uh. um, I was aware of the Nomad Day just, just through the news in the magazines that I read at the time. So as, as someone who looked, uh, honestly, I looked down my nose at the Game Boy on release. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have a lot more respect for it now. But back then, it was a kid's toy in my eyes. Mm-hmm. I looked at the Nomad differently in my magazines. I thought, yeah, I want that. I want that. I know the Mega Drive is a little old by this point, 95, or quite old, in fact. But it was a lot of power for a handheld. It could play games in full color. It had franchises like Golden Axe and Streets of Rage on it. Yeah, I'd, I'd have loved to have got a Nomad in 95. It was a good-looking machine. It, it ticked my boxes. Yeah, did you did you have one? Did you see one, John? Because I didn't even... I didn't, didn't see one. I think I've seen one in a museum now. I never saw one at the time. Yeah. I do remember seeing the Nomad in stores. And it's funny because a lot of these systems I never saw until they were in the closeout bin. You know, the, mm-hmm. the way that things work in, at least in, in America at your big box retail stores is that a lot of times when a console is new, it'll be behind the glass and, you know, they'll only have one out at a time. And unless you're really looking for it, it can be hard to find. But when these things don't sell and they want to get rid of them, they take them all out of the glass. They put them in a bin right in the middle of an aisle and they put price tags on them that say, $20 a piece. <laughs> and, and that's what happened to the Nomad. That's also what happened to the Dreamcast and the Saturn. Um, so Sega, just a long, you know, this is just part of their long, slow decline. Um, now, on the other hand, the Nomad did have some things going for it. You know, it was the first 16-bit handheld and nothing else in the handheld market could touch it spec-wise. Uh, another neat thing about it is that you could plug in a second controller. And if you and your friend didn't mind a somewhat, you know, intimate relationship, uh, you could share that tiny screen for some two-player action. That, I'm not sure how many people took advantage of that unless you're, you know, you're playing games with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. But at any rate, in 1995, we all knew that bigger and better things were coming right down the pike. You know, Sega had released the Saturn by this point, so everybody knew that the Genesis games were going to slow to a stop. And as a Game Gear owner, I already knew about the color LCD screen and battery life combo. And so that enough was I was like, you know what, this is just not going to work for me. No, thanks. Now, do I wish that I'd picked one up for $20 in the bargain bin? Heck yes. Because, you know, at $20, that's a pretty good value proposition. Just at the time when you're a kid, $20 is a lot of money. So the Nomad had received some time in the spotlight this past week, as highlighted in our show subreddit, again, by Starcade2084. Uh, he's two for two this week. Uh, for this, for the first time, the Nomad prototype has been unveiled to the public. And I've got to say, Neil, the Venus, which was its original name, looks about 400 million times better than the Nomad that was released here in the States. <laughs> and instead of those horrible oval-shaped face buttons on the Nomad, you know, Neil, there was something about the 90s and ovals. People were just crazy about ovals. It was, it was, the circles were passe at this point. The Venus, on the other hand, it sports buttons that mimic those found on the Genesis controller. You know, actual usable buttons. Sometimes you just need to stick with what works. Neil, what do you think of the Venus prototype? Well, uh, I think this Nomad prototype, the Venus, has aged better, like you say, than the actual Nomad. I was just thinking about you saying it's the first 16-bit handheld. I I think you're right, but I think Atari kind of threw the 16-bit word around with the links. um, Uh, Just because they had certain 16-bit chips in there. 
yeah, I, I, I think you may be right, but if you've actually sit down and played with any Lynx games, as I'm sure yeah. you have, yeah, 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 sixteen bit will be the furthest thing from your mind, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think it, I think they call it sixteen bit, perhaps in the same way they call the Jaguar like one hundred twenty eight bit or whatever they call 64, it. Sixty four, yeah, people yeah. just by adding up all the numbers. I, I don't know, but <laughs> but yeah, the, the, yeah, there's no doubt in the Nomad was sixteen bit, just like the Mega Drive was, because it is effectively a Mega Drive in there, and mm-hmm. um, when you look at it, the design of the prototype is much closer looking to the game gear. It's got a more symmetrical design with the rounded edges as well. Whereas the final nomad has a screen bezel that it kind of has one side of the bezel larger than the other. And it kind of, it's not symmetrical, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Asymmetry, another feature of nineties design. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's got a more angular finish to the whole thing. And as you pointed out, the buttons are more like the mega drive pads. It just looks more comfortable to use this Venus prototype. But I get why they chose the look they did, because it was released after, you mentioned there, after the Saturn. It was also released after the 32X. So Mm -hmm. this was was old hat. Um, It had to look new. It had to look different to the Game Gear. And just harking back to the Game Gear at the time, it wouldn't have inspired consumer confidence in the device at all. So I get it. It had to look different. But in the present day, I would take the prototype all day. It looks far better to me. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you want to see the Venus for yourself, just click on the link in the show notes. And if you were one of the lucky few Nomad owners out there, let us know on the subreddit. Stephen Jones is a name familiar to Amiga fans. He created the Checkmate 1500 Plus desktop case and successfully crowdfunded it. Uh, I think it was last year. It wasn't as far back as the year before yeah i think it was last year that he got that he's certainly still delivering the last orders on that it's been a very successful campaign it was an amiga 3000 inspired computer case that was compatible with both the original amiga 500 board and modern day pcs as well as lots of other devices that you could put in that well Stephen is back with his second product it's the difficult second album john and uh, what he's created is a mini but it's not one of those shrunken console minis that I know you love so much and we we discuss week in, week out. Uh, What he's really done is just shrunk down that original case to appeal to people who have different needs to those who bought the original. In fact, I wouldn't call this a mini at all. I would personally call it more of a a MIDI desktop case on the grand scale of things. And what this new computer case offers is a more compact design while still retaining the Amiga 3000-inspired look. It loses compatibility with original Amiga system boards because it's just too small now to fit them in. You won't get the width of an Amiga 500 into this case. Instead, it favors the mini ITX form factor. And we'll talk about what that means and what we can put in that shortly. But first up, aesthetically, John, what are your first impressions of this Checkmate Mini? Have you seen it? Do you like the look of it? What do you think? Well, I know from seeing you know the various models of Checkmate over at Amiga Ireland, uh, as well as gushing reviews from folks I trust like you, that that <laughs> Stephen does good work. Uh, I have no doubt that this is going to be a well crafted case. I like the variety of options you can buy into on the Kickstarter in terms of you know the different functionalities of the case, the different ports, and everything. Um, I also have no doubt that this thing is going to get funded. You know, a goal of under seventy thousand dollars for a project like this shows that he's not looking to get rich off the backs of fellow Amiga fans. Um, as as far as the aesthetics of the case go, I love it. Uh, I've always sort of been enamored with the Amiga three thousand. I think of all of the the big box Amigas, you know, it's it's hard to trump the original 1000 design, mm-hmm. but I'll take a 3000 over a 2000 or a 4000 any day. You know, it's got a unique look. 
that I think is is really attractive and makes it stand out among all the other beige boxes from the other the other uh, computer manufacturers out there. Now, Neil, I know that you just had a mega live stream event where you had Stephen on, and uh, and he took questions from your legions of fans. Uh, I noticed that he held up a prototype device and was showing off the insides. Now, you haven't actually seen one of these in person, have you? No, John, until now, I've only seen the 3D renders and the prototype that Stephen showed on his stream. But he does have that track record now from the first Kickstarter of delivering. He has his supply chains in place. So I don't think there can be any doubt that he'll he'll make this happen. If he hits the Kickstarter goal of $70,000, as you said, it's shown as £50,000 here to me as a Brit logging on to Kickstarter. An incredibly low number, I think. So he won't have trouble hitting that. If the case itself does interest me, but I do already have the larger original Checkmate case, which serves my needs. In fact, I've got two of them. In mm. one, I've built the brand new Amiga 500 using a PCB called the A500++. In the other, I fitted my Mister FPGA system. But the Mister installation was very much a labor of love. It involved Dremels. It involved hot glue. Uh, <laughs> and that's where the new case, the Mini, gets exciting for me because a cottage industry is springing up around Stephen's work, which complements his new case. And the two products that really excite me, and you perhaps saw him holding up on the live stream, were the Mist ITX and the Unamiga ITX. And they're being, being created in collaboration with his help to fit precisely in these case, cases, and in fact, any mini ITX case. So you don't necessarily have to get Stephen's case to fit these things, but they've sprung up because of the good work he's doing. So mm. if you get this case, you can now buy, you, you can put a standard PC in there if you want an ITX PC. You can also put in... Uh, a mini ITX form factor Raspberry Pi 4 mounting kit, which he's created, a Mister or an Amiga board in those ITX form factors. They just drop right into the case. No hot glue, no bodge wires to get the power and activity lights working. Just drop them right in. They give you a nice back plate so all of the ports are flush and looking nice on the rear of the case. And while the case is small, it's still big and solid enough to put a CRT on top of if you should want to. So I, I think it's a really nice combination. Are you tempted, John? You recently told us you were thinking about getting a Mister. Could this be the right case for an Amiga guy like you? You know, I honestly don't know. Um, the Mister is an expensive enough project as it is, you know, at 300 pounds uh, for one of those, those turnkey setups. And even though the case isn't wildly extravagant for something that's self-produced in small batches, you know, the price at 150 pounds or whatever... I just don't know if I can swing both from a financial perspective without feeling a little guilty. I mean, we're definitely entering into, you know, PS5, Xbox, you know, X territory with the, with yeah. the price of this, this whole thing. Um, the thing about the original Checkmate is that it had an intimate connection with real Amiga hardware. You know, it could fit the most popular iconic Amiga model, the 500, and give it expansion capabilities and house the whole unit in a very attractive package. Uh, the Mini doesn't have that kind of a tie-in with the original hardware, and it makes it just a little bit less cool to me. Though, don't get me wrong, it's still really, really cool. Uh, now, Neil, I, I know I don't even have to ask, but uh, are, are you backing this project? <laughs> I am, I am. I always put my money where my mouth is, John. So I have backed this project. On the on the subject of cost, if the mist is a little bit too rich for your blood, uh, Stephen showed off the Unamiga ITX board on the stream. Mm. Mm-hmm. He hasn't given a price yet. Uh, we don't know how much that's going to cost, but he did say it's going to be significantly cheaper than the Mister. Now, it's not going to have all the functionality of the Mister. It's going to be very much Amiga-based. Sure. Um, 
It will be FPGA based, but it won't have a supporting ARM chip with it like the Mister has. So that will bring the cost down. So mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to see how much that comes out for. And that effectively is a modern day Amiga, if you like, in FPGA form. So no, you can't put the original Amiga hardware in there, but it's pretty close, you know, mm-hmm. to to a brand new Amiga in the modern day. I think I'm, I'm going to be watching that with interest. So um, yeah, I have backed the case. I can see it's up to about £35,000 of the £50,000 goal with with 30 days to go. So I'm pretty confident that it's going to come to fruition. I totally agree that it's not cheap. In the context of the modern day, cheap PC cases, you know, are 10 to the dozen. So you could find a very cheap ITX case if you just wanted to get one of those other boards. There's lots of options over there. And that's the really nice thing about Stephen is he's so willing to work with the community, not to try and make these boards that have been developed exclusive to his case. He's really mm-hmm. willing to work with people to make them available. So it, it's really nice. Um, and I think Stephen actually might be very early to the game with this in the context of the Raspberry Pi, because if you think about the Pi 4, it's now a very capable machine. And as the Pi continues to develop, we have the convergence of cloud-based services more and more. We mentioned uh, perhaps that the next generation of gaming would be thin client gaming. I fully expect it to be. So we're going more and more in that direction. You've got the Pi. You don't necessarily need a lot of local power when it comes to thin client gaming or a lot of these cloud services. An increasingly powerful Pi, maybe the Pi 5 will be, you know, well, it will. It will be more powerful again whenever that thing turns up. I uh, don't expect it soon, but it will be more powerful. And I think more and more people, as this happens, are going to want to put their pies into a case that's more practical and permanently set up on their desk than a little plastic case. Right. I, I think there's big potential here for Stephen to tap into both the retro market and a very current and future market if all of those stars align. He could be destined for big things, you know. We'll see mm-hmm. where it goes. Yeah, but- and, and I do want to say I do have nothing but respect for Stephen for being willing to to work with these other people and not making the solutions, you know, uh, solely applicable to his his particular case, uh, you could easily, if you were a more business minded person, you know, uh, you know, ruthless American capitalist like I am, say, you know, these boards are only going to work with my case. You got to buy my case to make these boards fit perfectly. If you get something else, it's not going to be as good. And Stephen is totally the opposite mindset there. Oh yeah, totally. He he could have just come up with the the Jones form factor that only mm-hmm. works in his case. <laughs> he's, right. uh, he's very generous with his time and his efforts. So, uh, but of course, none of this will happen if it doesn't get funded. So, check out the Checkmate Mini on Kickstarter using the link in the show notes, or search for the Checkmate Mini over on Kickstarter itself. And the very best of luck to Stephen with his project. Thanks for listening to This Week in Retro. Join our show subreddit to contribute your favorite news stories. And if you really enjoy our show, then visit coffee.com forward slash This Week in Retro. That's ko-fi.com forward slash This Week in Retro to put a tip in the jar. Help us spread the word about the show by telling a friend, leaving us a review on your podcatcher of choice, and subscribing to the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. We'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.